Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. All right, Mark 9. So last two weeks, it's been some tough sledding for us. Um, some of the most significant portions of Mark are, are packed into this pivot point. You have kind of the first eight chapters and the second eight chapters. And the middle of chapter 8 through the middle of chapter 9 is the hinge in Mark where Jesus goes from re- really working with the crowds, being very public in his ministry, to really zeroing in on the disciples and being very specific about what it means for him to be the Messiah. We said that that pivot point is Peter saying, you're the Messiah, speaking for the 12. They finally get it. There's some level of enlightenment there, but they see partially, just like we all do. It's that, it's that picture of the healing, this guy who's healed. And he says, yeah, I see people, but they look like trees. And so Jesus has to touch him again. And that's us. We're all, on, we're all in process. We're in this continuum between not seeing Jesus at all and seeing him clearly, and none of us see him clearly. There's always growth for us. And so Jesus begins to tell the 12, yes, I'm the Messiah. You got that right. I'm going to be the Messiah who suffers and dies. That's what we just sang. And they didn't have any, there's no grid for that. We said last week, there's, we can't fathom how difficult it would have been for those guys to get their mind around a Messiah who suffers and dies. It's, it's cliche for us. We all know Jesus as Jesus on the cross. That's not the understanding that they would have had. The Messiah was supposed to win. And if you're dying on a cross, that looks a whole lot like losing. And so then Jesus goes even one step further and he says, it's not just that I'm going to die. If you're going to follow me, then you've got to be willing to also. You've got to be willing to disown your life and to take up your cross and to follow me down this road of suffering. So that's, again, that's tough sledding for us. We're asking, all right, where am I not seeing you clearly, Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you lead me more clearly into the understanding of who Jesus is? Where am I maybe trying to hold on to Jesus with one hand and hold on to the world in the other? Where am I trying to have both instead of being willing to disown my life, let go of these things and follow Jesus exclusively? We said last week, one of the things that trips us up is a lot of times the things that we want for ourselves, the things the world offers us and the things that Jesus wants for us. Initially, they look really, really similar. And so we can think we're following Jesus when we're really just walking in the same direction as he is for a time, a period of time. We can think that we're following him, but it's, again, for this initial period of time, the things that we want for ourselves look a whole lot like the things that he wants for us. And it's not until he asks something of us that's, that's a sacrifice that goes against what we want that we realize, oh, wait, I, was, I wasn't surrendered to you at all. I just thought that you were endorsing my plan for my life, and now you're not, and I don't like that so much. So we talk, that's not easy either. T- today is going to be hard also. Sorry. It's, I'm just reading what's next. All right, we're going to walk through 29 verses. We're going to do it in four sections. Chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, so six days after he says that, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. He led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There Jesus was transformed before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's, not, it's good for us to be here. 
let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So Jesus takes three disciples. We don't know why only three instead of all 12. Peter, James, and John, who do seem to form his inner circle. And they go up a mountain. We don't know which mountain. And Jesus is transformed. Your Bible probably says transfigured. He, he, it's not, Jesus doesn't, it's not like Jesus is wearing a a human costume and he takes this disguise off. That's not what's going on. Jesus didn't show them who he really is. Who they've seen him to be, it's who he really is. Jesus just shows them the rest of who he is. One of the truths of Christianity, you, you, you basically, well, you don't basically, you have to. This is part of what it means to follow Jesus. This is orthodoxy. Jesus is 100% human and he's 100% divine. That makes no sense to us because 100 plus 100 is 200, which is more than, that's more than 100. That's more than complete. Like you can't do that. We would say, well, maybe he's 50-50. He's not. This is, there's a mystery here. He's completely human. He's a man like we are, except he doesn't sin. And he's completely God. He's just as much God as God the Father. He's 100% of both smashed together into one being. What we've seen of Jesus up through chapter 9 is his humanity. I think everything he's done, he's done as the Messiah set apart by the Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He teaches, he preaches, he heals, he raises people from the dead. He does all of that, not because he's God, but because he's the Messiah set apart by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do those things. With the exception maybe of walking on water. That one to me is probably a glimpse of him showing his divinity. What Peter, James, and John see on the mountain, they see, again, the rest of who Jesus is. They've seen his humanity, and now they see his godness. Jesus is revealing his deity, his divinity to them. And they don't know what to do, just like we wouldn't know what to do. Usually, we don't know what to do. You should keep your mouth shut. Peter doesn't. He says, let's, let's build some shelters. Moses and Elijah are two of the most uh, prominent Old Testament figures. Jesus is talking to them. And then Peter says, let's build a shelter, one for each of you guys. Again, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Mark is Peter's recollection. He's the one that told us that, Peter did. He didn't know, he was scared. He didn't know what he was saying. Why would he want to build shelters? There's this, uh, one of the three major Jewish festivals, it's the Festival of Tabernacles. And it commemorated God delivering the Jews out of Egyptian bondage and God being with the Jews in the wilderness. That was really what it was. And so once a year, Jewish men would go to Jerusalem and they would all build these, like for us, it'd be like a tent. And they would live in these tents for a week as a way of remembering what their ancestors had done in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's a picture of God being with his people. And I think that's what Peter's saying. Hey, this is great. Let's, let's extend this a little bit. We'll create these, for him, it's the the only appropriate way he can think to respond. This looks like worship. This looks like honoring you guys. You know, we'll we'll create these shelters. Moses, you're a deliverer. Elijah, you're a deliverer. Jesus, you're the Messiah. That's a deliverer. You're you're here, y'all are here with us. And so let's create these, these environments where we can kind of be together. And then the father speaks, and it's the most important part of the, Scene, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to what he's been saying to you about suffering and dying. Remember last week we said that word must. 
The Son of Man must suffer. Must is really important. Suffer, Jesus' suffering is part of the Father's plan for him. It's not accidental and it's not incidental. It's intentional. It's a, it, 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 it is the road. That's why Jesus responds so strongly to Peter when Peter says, no, you're not supposed to suffer and die. And he says to him, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes him so strongly because like, this is the only road. This is it. And so now we have the father putting his stamp of approval on Jesus and on that road. You got to listen to what he's saying, guys. What he's saying is true. He does have to suffer and he is going to die. That doesn't mean that I don't love him. This is my son whom I love. Deuteronomy 22 says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. So when Jesus is hanging on the cross, many people see that as a sign that God has rejected him. He's not the Messiah. He's not who he says he was because God would never let that happen to one of his guys. And here we see before that happens, the father affirming Jesus. He's my son and I love him. Y'all need to listen to him. For us, there are times when we get to be Peter, James, and John. There are times where we get to go up on that mountain and it's all butterflies and rainbows. And those are wonderful seasons of life. And that's all they are a season, but they're wonderful when we have them. And the Bible is alive to us and we're, we sense God in worship and we feel like our, our prayers are reaching the throne of heaven and, and things are kind of rolling And those are wonderful times and we want to enjoy them. There's temptation during those times. One is to do what Peter did and to say, how can I camp out here? Which is completely understandable. It's wonderful. And so we want to extend that time. That's that's a temptation for us. Another temptation for us, and this can be killer, is to compare the rest of our life to those mountaintop kinds of experiences. It's not helpful Life isn't lived up there. Those, those experiences are a gift to us. And, and we want to learn what God is trying to teach us through them. But you can't live there. And we can all have a tendency to do that. If you compare all of your life to those most special times, then it quickly creates dissatisfaction. It's a bit of a tangent. I see this sometimes in married couples when they're comparing kind of the dailiness of life to their honeymoon. That you only get one of those. And, and, and to think that that's how your entire marriage is going to be, you're setting yourself up for failure. Or those times with your, maybe with your children or in your work, like the best days, like take those as gifts. But Again, if every, every day is not a home run, there are lots of singles and the singles are okay and doubles are okay. Those things are okay. That's the dailiness of life. If everything has to be a home run, then we spend most of our time being dissatisfied and discontent. So enjoy the mountaintop, whether that's your time with the Lord or just the circumstances of your life, but don't try to live there. Next section. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked Jesus, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they've done to him everything that they wished just as it's written about him. So Jesus now, is, he's, they're coming off the mountain and he says, you can't tell anybody what you just saw until I rise from the dead. And they don't understand. 
rising from the dead seems pretty literal to us. Like, how do they not get that? But if you can't get your mind around Jesus dying, then there's no way you're going to get rising from the dead. If you can't, if you haven't assimilated the truth that the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus has to suffer and die, then of course you're going to try to figure out, well, what does it mean to rise from the dead? You're going to think metaphorically or spiritually or whatever. And so they ask him a question. Malachi says that God would send Elijah back and that he would turn the hearts of parents to their children and children to their parents. And they're saying, well, that hadn't happened. We just saw Elijah up on a mountain. He hadn't come back yet. And Jesus says, well, actually he has. He's referring to John the Baptist. He has come back and they cut his head off. And just like that prophecy was fulfilled that God would send Elijah, so the prophecies about the son of man suffering will also be fulfilled. And those are found primarily in Isaiah 53. Those things are going to happen just like God sent Elijah, John the Baptist. You didn't recognize him, but he came back. There's something similar going on. You're not recognizing what's going on with me. But all of those scriptures are still going to be fulfilled. Then they get down to the plain. And then it's, it's pretty chaotic. When they come to the other disciples, so those are the nine that didn't go up the mountain. They saw a large crowd around them, the teachers of the law, arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. And the man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. Ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when, Jesus, when the Spirit saw Jesus, it threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed the boy violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. So Jesus comes down the mountain to chaos. So you have the nine disciples who Jesus didn't take up on the mountain. You've got a crowd. You've got religious leaders, and you've got a man with a boy, a son, who's both demon-possessed and epileptic. Matthew and Luke said that the boy has epilepsy. And it's chaos. This man has brought his son to the disciples, and they weren't able to heal him. And then I think the religious leaders pick up on that, and they start fussing with the disciples. We've seen that before. They try to get to Jesus through the twelve. There was a time where they didn't wash their hands when they came back from the market and the religious leaders fuss at Jesus because the disciples didn't do that. It's a way for them to attack him. They can't necessarily go at him directly all the time. So they're going at him through his followers. And I think they're doing that. I think because of the disciples failure to cast out this demon to help this boy, the religious leaders are now going at Jesus through those nine guys. We don't know that. Jesus comes on the scene and everybody's overwhelmed. I think it's the adult has now entered the room. And so every, it, it, it does put, it kind of puts people at ease. What, and the religious leaders fade from the scene. We don't see them again. What are y'all arguing about? And the person who answers them is this man. 
this father with his son. I think he was the catalyst for the argument. I don't know that he was participating in the argument, but I think he was the catalyst. When his son wasn't healed, I think that's what, that's what stirred everything up. That's what, it's kind of the match that lit the fire of this argument between the religious leaders and these nine disciples. And he says, my son is in horrible shape. He's demon possessed. And this demon, when forces him, for lack of a better word, into this, these epileptic fits. And pause over here, digression. What is the connection between demonic activity and illness? Sometimes there is a connection, and this is one of the cases. This boy is demon-possessed, and that demon possession manifests itself in this physical condition of epilepsy. And so when Jesus casts the demon out of this boy... He's healed of his, ep- of, his, of his epilepsy. Those things are connected. Does that mean every time someone is sick, it's a demon at work? Of course not. You already knew the answer to that. Sometimes, but not all the time. The enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, so it makes sense that he would want to wreak havoc in our bodies. Our, our, our bodies and in our, in our brains. He does that. What I would encourage you to do is, if you have particularly a chronic condition... So something that you struggle with over time is just to simply ask God, is there a spiritual dimension? Is there a spiritual component to this disease, to this condition? And he'll let you know. And the answer is yes or no. And if it's yes, then you can pray and deal with it that way. If the answer is no, then you don't need to worry about it. Sometimes there's a, sometimes there's a spiritual component to our conditions, our physical conditions, but not all the time. And so I think it's helpful to just ask. This passage can give some people heartburn. If, if there's always this connection, if I'm sick, does that mean there's a, a demon involved? Not, not necessarily. And I would say for those of us who are walking with Jesus, not, I would say not, not usually. But it's always helpful to ask the question. So this, anyway, this, this man is desperate and he brings his boy and he says, here's his condition. And Jesus responds what sounds like it's, it's pretty harsh. How long am I going to have to live with this unbelieving generation? This is something we've never seen before. When people have approached Jesus, every other time we've seen, he's responded with compassion. This time it doesn't seem so compassionate. He pushes back on this guy. I think he's talking to this guy. I don't know that he's speaking to the nine disciples. It seems to me that he's laying responsibility for this boy's condition on his dad. And he's referring to his dad as part of this unbelieving generation and saying, how long do I have to stay with you guys? And again, that's a harsh, that seems like a pretty harsh response to a father who's in a pretty desperate situation. We've seen the flip side of this, where Jesus commends people because of their faith. They come to him believing that he can heal them. And he says, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. This is the other side of that coin. This guy doesn't have a lot of confidence in Jesus's ability to heal. And so his son has not been healed and Jesus is calling him on it. And again, that's, it sounds harsh, but there's more, there's, there's more to the story. Jesus doesn't just send him away. How long has the boy been this way since he was a kid? It's terrible. This demon tries to kill him, throwing him into the water and into fire. Bring the boy here to me. And then the, the father brings him and then that kind of killer statement for him, if you can help. And Jesus seizes on that word. If, if I can, everything's possible 
if you believe. And then this beautiful response from this man. And I think this is where Jesus has been headed. I do believe. Help me in the areas where I don't. Help my unbelief. It's a beautiful picture of humility. Humility is not thinking too highly of yourself or thinking too lowly of yourself. It's thinking rightly. Humility is agreeing with what God says about you. So we're, we're people who are created in the image of God and we're people who are made from dirt. Both of those things are true from Genesis 1 and 2. This, this man, he, he's a picture of that. I do believe. I brought my son here. I do believe. You got to help me in the areas where I don't. And he, there's probably all kinds of stuff underneath that statement. I don't believe because I've been praying for years and he still is sick. I don't believe because I've gone to every doctor I know and nobody's been able to help. I don't believe because I brought him to your disciples and they didn't do anything. There might be all kinds of reasons why he's struggling with his belief. And he says, help me. And Jesus does. He, he, he heals this boy, casts a demon out of him. And the boy's made well. The demon's gone and he's cured of healed of epilepsy. All those things happen together. To me, it's this, it, the, the picture here, again, we can maybe initially think Jesus is being pretty harsh on this father. What he's looking for is trust and he's given the father an opportunity to grow and to express that. This is where I think most of us live most of the time. Or so maybe I'll say this is where all of us live most of the time. Sometimes we're on the mountain. Most of the time, this is, this is life. It's chaotic. There's people who are, you know, it's, again, picture the scene. If you're Peter, James, and John, you're coming down the mountain. You've got these nine disciples who are maybe trying their best, and they're, they're floundering. You've got enemies, these religious leaders who are picking at them. You've got this crowd that's kind of looking around, going to take sides. You've got a father who's desperate. That's where many of us live. We're, we're like that father in a lot of ways. We, we, we've got a situation and we have some degree of confidence that Jesus can help. But if we're honest, it's just some degree and maybe not a high, very high degree of confidence. I think about that dad, and again, I, we don't know his story. We don't know the background. We don't know how many times he's prayed a prayer. We don't know how many times he's gone to the synagogue or gone to a rabbi or gone to the latest wandering miracle worker to say, can you help? Maybe never, but I'm thinking he's put some effort in to trying to see his son healed, and it's, nothing's worked. He comes to Jesus, I think, probably more out of desperation than anything else. And then the disciples, they're not able to help him either. So whatever confidence he had, it's, it's dropped. Just like we see Jesus partially, our faith is a mixed bag also. For the most of the, those of you that I know in the room, I, I can say confidently, there are things that you trust. There are areas where you're trusting Jesus. There are areas where you believe him, where you have faith, again, where you're trusting him, whether that's you trusting him to forgive you of your sins. And so when you die, you'll spend forever with God. Maybe you're trusting him with your business or with your health. I don't, but there, there are places where we're trusting. But then there are also places where we're not. And I think we have to be honest, just like we want to be honest and say, I don't see him clearly. Holy Spirit, show me where to me Jesus looks like a tree. 
we want to say, where am I not believing him? Where am I not trusting him? And again, part of it is recognizing that's true for us. None of us trust perfectly. So I would ask you maybe two things. What, what are you worried about? And where are you weary? That's hard to say. Where are you weary? And where are you worried? Those are most likely places where you're not trusting Jesus. If you worry, it's probably because you're not resting in him to take care of whatever the situation is. And if you're weary, it's probably because you're working in your own strength to keep the balls in the air to make something happen. Where are you weary and where are you worried? Most likely, that's an area where you're not trusting him. Again, it's not a complete indictment. We all believe to some degree, but it's a recognition that none of us trust perfectly. And so what we want to grow, we want to grow. And so we want to say, Holy Spirit, show me. Where am I not trusting Jesus completely? Where, where, Where am I lacking? And then ask him to help us in our unbelief. That word help, it's used of a calling a doctor when you're sick. You've got what I need. I'm not going to be able to figure this out on my own. Help me in my unbelief. Again, it's this beautiful response from this guy. He acknowledges the areas where he does trust. He acknowledges the areas that he doesn't. And he acknowledges that Jesus is the key to him. He doesn't say, you're right, I don't believe, so I'm going to come back when I do. I'm going to work really hard and try to believe you more. Which is what we try to do. We try to force ourselves to trust more. Instead of saying, God, help me, help me. This is a struggle. And here are the reasons why it's a struggle. And you probably have reasons why it's a struggle. And you bring all that stuff to him and say, you got to help me overcome this area where I'm doubting. All right, last thing. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive out that demon? And Jesus replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. This is super interesting to me. So in Mark 6, Jesus sends the 12 out two by two, and he explicitly gives them authority to cast out demons. And in 6, 12, and 13, we read that they cast out many demons, they anoint many sick people with oil and heal them. So this is something that, this is, this is not new for them. They have been successful in this exact circumstance before. We have a boy who's sick and who's demon-possessed. They know what to do, and they've been given authority to do it. So how come this time they're unable to? Jesus says this kind only comes out by prayer. Well, what other kind is there? I kind of want to know. And Jesus doesn't pray, which is the biggest part for me. He just commands it. He doesn't. Read it. He just commands the demon to come out. He doesn't pray. So this kind only comes out by prayer, but Jesus doesn't pray. And he's successful. What is going on there? I think two things. One, this is speculative, but I think it's true. I think those nine guys, I think their feelings got hurt. It's human nature. If you're not picked, even if you can kind of say in your brain, well, I get why they were a better choice than me. I see why he picked them. It still hurts to be left out. If there's something you want to do when you're not chosen, it hurts. And I think these guys got their feelings hurt that he took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain and he didn't pick them. And we'll see next time we look at the next story, we'll see it did create some tension. They start arguing about who's the greatest among them. This, this scene did bring some division among the 12. So I think their feelings are hurt. And when I think about prayer, think about it beyond just asking, but prayer is communion. 
The way that we stay connected to God is by praying. Praying is conversation. If you're not talking to God, then over time your relationship with him fades, just like every other relationship that you have. If you're not actively talking to somebody, what do we call that? Losing touch. That's what we say. We've lost touch. We're not talking to each other anymore. I think these nine, because their feelings got hurt, they've lost touch with Jesus. He's the source of their power. Being connected to him, remaining in him, abiding in him, that's the source of their spiritual power. They've lost touch with that, again, I think because their feelings are hurt. I don't know that they're trying to prove anything by trying to heal it. I don't know if they're like, well, we'll show him. And I don't know that they're doing that. I don't necessarily know what their attitude was when this, when this uh, man brings his son to them. Again, I don't know that it was some kind of haughty, I'm going to prove it to you, Jesus. You should have picked me. Or if it's just like, well, we're here, so we might as well. Or I, I don't know. But I do think that, again, there's, there's disappointment there. There, maybe they were offended. That happens. We get offended by the Lord at times. But I do think they, they've lost touch in some ways. And I think that's what Jesus was saying. This kind comes out only by prayer. You, you've, you lost touch with me, with the source of your spiritual power. And that's why you weren't able to do this. When Jesus sent them out in Mark 6, he wasn't physically present. So it's not about Jesus being physically with them. They've done this without Jesus in the city before. But I think it's this heart connection. And again, I think it's easy for us. We occasionally are Peter, James, and John. We have these mountaintop experiences. I think most of our life, we're the dad. I believe, help my unbelief. This is a situation that's difficult for me to trust you with because of A, B, C, D, and E. And I need you to help me. And I also think we wind up being the nine maybe at least as often as we're the three. We feel like maybe God didn't pick us for something. We look around at somebody else's life and we think, how come that's not mine? How come they have it easier than me? How come they seem to be getting whatever it is that they want and I'm, I'm still stuck wherever it is that I am? And it's easy for us, I think, at times to get offended with the Lord or, or, or at least disappointed with him. I don't get why you've got me where you've got me. It seems like you've gone on with some other guys and you've left me behind. And in those moments when we're, dis- when we're disappointed or offended, maybe that's a bit more rare, but it happens, we lose touch. Again, it's just human nature. If you hurt my feelings, then I'm probably not going to run up to you and give you a hug next time I see you. I'm probably going to avoid you because you hurt me. Even again, if I can get my mind around why you made the decisions that you did, I'm going to tend to avoid you. Again, I'm embarrassed, I'm disappointed, I'm offended, whatever. And I think the same thing can happen with us in the Lord. When he disappoints us or offends us, when we feel like the nine who got kind of left behind, not kind of, they did, they got left behind. And I don't know why, but they did. And in that moment, their feelings get hurt, they lose touch. And again, that's where many of us, we can get there. And it's a, it's a bad spot to be in because over time, that distance, it, it, time heals all wounds. I don't think time heals any wounds except on your body. It doesn't heal any wounds in your heart. You might forget something, but it's not healed. It, there's there's got to be this intentional looking at and dealing with 
and bringing to the light, saying, it bothered me. Like, it's okay to say to God, like, that hurt. That one hurt. That was really disappointing for me. Like, that's okay to say those things to him. Otherwise, what you're doing, distance is starting to create. You're, you're going to wind up losing touch. You can tell how your prayers become more formalized. You're not engaging your heart. Less frequent. You start looking for other things to do. And over time, again, that, just, that distance grows and grows. And then, unfortunately, it, could, it can become more difficult to re-engage. Again, think about just your human relationships. Well, we hadn't talked in so long, it would be awkward to talk now. And that same kind of dynamic can slip into our relationship with the Lord. And the only solution, prayer, that's what we have. Think of prayer again as conversation, not necessarily just as asking. God, this is, I can look and I can say, Here, here's where the break occurred. And I still don't understand it. And I'm asking you to forgive me for my part in this, moving away. And I'm asking you to step towards, I, I'm taking a step towards you and I, I want to experience you taking a step towards me. God doesn't really move. We're the ones that move. But that's what it feels like to us. It feels like he's left us behind. He doesn't do that. But that's our experience. And so we say, God, move back to me. He ha again, he hasn't moved. We're the ones that do that. But those, are, those prayers are still honest and they're, they're good to pray. So this is what I want us to do. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to think about right now this morning, if you have to pick one, and you have to. You're one of the three right now, and don't be, feel guilty about this. Like, celebrate it. You're on a mountaintop. Everything's wonderful. Rainbows and butterflies. And if that's you, I just want you to thank the Lord. And I want you to ask him this one simple question. What would you want to teach me on this mountain that's going to help me when I'm back down on the plane? Just ask him that one simple question. What do you want to teach me? What do you want to show me? For Peter, James, and John, it was the glory of Jesus. They needed that. What do you want to teach me? Maybe this morning you would say, I'm one of the nine. I feel left behind. We're not going to throw pity parties for ourselves, but we want to be honest about that. You're floundering a bit. You've lost some connection. Even if you're still doing all of the same things, your heart's not engaged in them. You're going through the motion, you're checking a box. If that's where you are, I just want you to ask the Lord this question. What would it look like for me to return? Maybe you're the dad this morning. You've got a significant area of need in your life that may be something that's a crisis. It's got to happen right now. Or it may be something that's chronic, like his son's condition. This has been going on for a while, but it's significant. 
And if you were honest, you would say, there are areas where I trust Jesus and there are areas where I don't. Would you just, this question, Jesus, would you help me in my unbelief? Where are you this morning? Are you one of the three? Are you one of the nine? Are you the dad? We're all, all of them at some point. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and you would minister to each one of us the thing that we most need in this moment. And I pray that we would respond to you in humility and in faith. I pray that you would grow our understanding of the great love that you have for us and that you would grow our ability, our capacity to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 